Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe Podcast. Next week we're going to be back with our first episode of Rebels as we're covering that, episodes 1 through 4. But today we're continuing our book club, once again with Jonah Kelman, and today we're going to be talking about the Republic Commando books and how their image of the clones informs or is different than the idea we get from the Clone Wars and especially from the new TV show, The Bad Batch. All that and more right after this commercial break. We have no control over back. I'm Matthew, your host. I'm joined once again by Jonah Kelman, who is, I'm just trying to try to describe you. You're, you're I think, my f- the foremost expert on the uh, Star Wars Legends books. Uh, is that is that a good way to describe you? Uh, I, yeah, that's my area of expertise, my personal part of Star Wars that I care most deeply about, the Legends books, the pre-Disney stuff. Nice, nice. What? And I know we've had you on a couple times before, because one thing I've really appreciated is that you've both been... Uh, so dedicated to that stuff, but also interested in some of the new stuff. And we've had some great conversations about sort of how they play together. And we talked a lot about uh, the Darth Bane books and sort of how that informs stuff we've seen on screen. And I've wanted to have a way to talk to you about the Republic Commando books for a while, because I, I believe, is it fair to say these are some of your favorite? Yeah, I think not only are they some of the better written books from the Legend series, but I also think that they ask more interesting questions than the black and white of Jedi versus Sith. There's a lot of gray morality in here. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think I think it's very true. And I think certainly for anyone who's heard my coverage of the Clone Wars TV show with our Riki and Sarah Hayashi, we went into a lot of ethical issues about cloning that these books raise very well. And I think it's really interesting to think about it in those terms since these books not only predate the Bad Batch, but they predate the Clone Wars TV show itself. And while they're not officially canon, I think it's pretty clear that a lot of those idea, a lot of the ideas from them, and, and even some of the general concepts and specific uh, story beats, wind up getting told on screen. So it's it's really great to see, you know, one more instance of where the legends might be officially canon, but certainly has had a very strong influence in shaping this part of the Star Wars world. Yeah, I'd love to see the connections and where the stories go and how they're rewritten or written again, which is right a pedantic difference, but a difference in my mind. Yeah, no, I think I think it's very true. Well, and so we're going to use that, and and as I said, though the kind of framing device for us today is, is the Bad Batch TV show a little bit, and because I think that for many people that's their most recent uh, introduction to the clones, as well as that it really explores some of the questions that the characters in the Republic Commando books are often thinking about and exploring towards the end of the Republic Commando books, namely about you know what happens to clones when the war is over. And so let me just kind of start there. What were your general thoughts on Bad Batch, the show? I really enjoyed it. I think they asked some good questions. They had fun characters. They told interesting stories. Sure, there's a little bit of filler here and there, but Mm -hmm. I mean, clones are my favorite characters in Star Wars and getting to see another motley crew go out and go on zany adventures just makes me happy. Yeah. And Bad Batch feels so perfect because... The individual characters are quite different, but the idea of a squad of clones who are clones, but are all kind of like clone alterations, so they don't look and sound exactly like all the others, and they don't have all their same skill sets, they have very different ones, that's actually, that same plot idea happens in these books, just in a different way. So why don't we use that as kind of a way to kind of get into, what what exactly are the Republic Commando books? The Republic Commando books follow... Uh, squads of commandos there were or are three tiers of clone troopers and i'm going to try and get through this quickly as possible they're your basic clone troopers the ground soldiers marching in those giant formations at the end of attack of the clones the ones you see attacking planets piloting the ships that sort of thing then you have clone commandos um you actually see a couple of them in the bad batch on oh boy it's a planet towards the end of the series i can't remember uh, where they rescue another clone trooper. Uh, I can't remember yes. the name of that planet. I'm not even talking about it. I'm not. Uh, it's an this is not where you go for the. Anyways, yeah. they have bulkier armor and they are meant to go on missions that require a little bit more subtlety where you send four clones who have been trained together as very close brothers and they go off and do a mission. 
Uh, that's right. very, very similar to what we see the Bad Batch doing. And then you have ARC commandos, or ARC troopers, Advanced Recon commandos. And those are the closest to pure Django. They have very little loyalty or ability to listen to commands, but they can get in there, get the job done all on their own. Uh, and we right. see a couple of those in both the Clone Wars and in the Bad Batch, just as, oh, these guys are super badasses. Uh, the Commandos, though, I find the most interesting because they are given the opportunity to have the most personality. They're given the opportunity to have individuality because they're not one of millions. Right. But they also have some connection with other people because they're not soloists. They work as a team. Mm -hmm. um, and they were trained in batches of a hundred. And so they have a larger family. They respect their mentor. And so they're very complex characters, very, very similar to the Bad Batch themselves. Right. And, and in the conceit of the books is that not only did Jango Fett, who was himself a Mandalorian, use himself as the, not only was his genetic material used for the clones, but that he is kind of in charge of the training of the clones. And so he has brought in a number of other Mandalorian warriors to uh, train primarily those groups of the, the highest level commandos. Right. Uh, the Kuivaldar, those who no longer exist, translated from the Mandalorian. Uh, right. And they're mostly Mandalorians, although some of them are not. They're just the best mercenaries that Jango Fett knows. Right. Then again, and it's, many of the best mercenaries are Mandalorian. Right. And it's interesting because through them, like we wind up learning in the books an awful lot about Mandalorian culture, which I also find very fascinating. We're going to talk about how... Like, these books, I think, are primarily informing the Clone Wars and Bad Batch, but you can certainly see some echoes of what is introduced in these books, uh, or at least is continued in these books, in TV shows like The Mandalorian that we've had much more recently. Yes, absolutely. Well, and so now talk about Null Squad a little bit, because that that's the one that to me feels like the, the easiest direct comparison to The Bad Batch. Right. So the idea behind Null Squad, or the Null Troopers, are they were... Batch Zero, thus Null, of ARC Troopers, the most advanced raw clones. And they had no loyalty to anybody. Um, except there was one trainer, Cal Scarata, who adopted them and protected them. And they became very loyal to him. But they have no loyalty to the Republic, no loyalty to the Jedi, no loyalty to the Kaminoans. They just do the job, they go out, get their validation, complete the mission for their father, pretty much, right. and come back home doing what they can to make him happy. And what makes him happy is the protection of other clones. Right. Um, and they, they do look like all other clones, but as you said, right. they're, they, 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 were, they were adopted because the Kaminoans sort of felt like they were so... The Kaminoans, as we learn over the books, were both kind of brainwashing these kids from very early ages to be completely obedient to both the Jedi and the Kaminoans, but we're also kind of breeding them to be either more or less compliant. Right. And, and the conceit is that these kids are so uncompliant that they're all just going to be terminated before the um, uh, the Mandalorian sergeant, Cal, is, is able to, to rescue them. Yeah, and th that's something that comes up in the Clone Wars and in the Bad Batch and in these Republic Commando books. It's that the Kaminoans, if they think you are not perfect, will just kill you. Right. If you're one of their products, because they see clones as a product, as a resource, not as living human beings. Um, right. Like Omega from the Bad Batch, if they get her back, top scientists or the governor, I can't remember his title, is just like, yep, we'll just get rid of her and start from scratch. Right. Talk a little bit more about the Kaminoans and what we learn about them in these books, because I think, to me, I feel like in the books, they are really presented in this wonderful way of the not moral or immoral, but the amoral scientist, because they don't have, there's no sort of cruelty of like rubbing our fists together and wahaha, we get to kill all these clones. It's more just like you said, they don't attach any moral value to, right. to really any any life that's not Kaminoan, but especially to the clones, because to them, you know, they don't say kill, they say terminate. They right. say 
uh, they're, they're talking about the clones as though they are products, not people. Right, and it's like reprocess or recycle the genetic material. It's just like, yeah, we're going to kill you and take your genetic material. But anyways, the Kaminoans, um, and this is delving a bit deeper into the Legends canon, they are a culture of uh, derived from eugenics. They had an apocalypse on their planet, and the only way they could survive, they thought, was to cull anybody who did not have ideal genetics and so if you did not have what they thought was necessary they removed you from the genetic pool and so reproduced in that way and so they have this culture of obtaining perfection that they Mm -hmm. have on their own people and they put that forward onto their product their clones Um, and they are scientists almost for science's sake uh more or less i mean yes they're doing this for money so that they can survive but throughout the books they're just like oh this is fascinating what can i do with this and it's the dying body of somebody or some species that they haven't encountered before and it's just interesting to them it's not can i save this person it's what medical procedures can i learn what can i learn what do I get out of this? What knowledge? What technology? Yeah. Because they're not originals. And it's such a nice way of exploring that issue because, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about villains, obviously, and these, these characters are, they both have no malice, but also no compassion. And I think in the same way, they're kind of perfect because they're not people who are like, oh, yes, we're going to help Darth Sidious and assist because we hate the Jedi or we hate the Republic. They couldn't care less, it seems like, about this Sidious guy or Palpatine or Dooku or any of them, uh, you know, or uh, sifo who are contacting them to make these. They don't care why the armors are being made. They don't care why the armies are being used. They just are interested in the science and in getting paid to help, you know, keep the funder happy to continue keeping the lab open. Right. They get money from this and they turn that around to apply to the research for their own species, for their own genetic development, so that they can continue to improve. Uh, It's a survival of the species thing and they don't care about the other species. Now, you said that that because a clone is a copy, so it's not even as as valuable as a person. Talk more about that because I think this question of the, the moral value of a clone was a very big part of our discussions about the, the Clone Wars, as I said, primarily with Riki and Sarah, but you also joined in for a couple episodes. And I think it's kind of so fundamental to this era of Star Wars and, and the moral failings of the Jedi and how they fall. What's what's kind of the Cam and Owens idea of it? Because that's where it seems like it really starts. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from the pure scientific angle. When you... Go back to high school or middle school and remember those tests or worksheets that your teacher photocopied. Mm-hmm. Each time you f- they photocopied it, each year it just got progressively worse. And so the right. Kaminoans only care about the original genetic material. Everything beyond that is a shallow copy. It's not useful to them. There's no change or mutation that they didn't put in. That is, it's not, if it's there, it's because it was an improvement they chose to put in and therefore they can mm. replicate it or it's a mistake and there's nothing right. new of value in this body right and so there's just no moral value to it at all the idea I'm, of there being like i think one thing that's very interesting is that and this is very much played out in the clone wars tv show the clones don't have names they have numbers and they're yeah. not expected to have any individuality and then when they develop individuality and start using names for themselves this is deeply surprising to the Kaminoans. Right. They're objects. And in the books and in the show, when the troopers use their names, the Kaminoans are like, no, 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 that's not your 5555, not fives. Um, or right. your RC1136, not Darman. Like, you should, what are you doing? This is incorrect. Right. This is inefficient. Right. And so that's where the Kaminoans see themselves. How do the clones in these books react to that? What is kind of the, you know, this question of like, what's the moral nature of the clones is obviously one that's really explored in the book. So talk about first from the clones perspective. How, how do you see that playing out from the perspective of the clones themselves? I mean, at the beginning of the Clone Wars, uh, shortly before the Battle of Geonosis and shortly after, 
the clones are very much on the same page as the Kaminoans because they've been told, this is your universe. Your universe is to go to these planets to fight these wars to shoot the enemy. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to do. And the clones are like, all right, I have a purpose in the galaxy. Um, In one of the earlier Republic Commando books, I believe, as just like a header to one of the chapters, a clone is like, I just feel so bad for everybody who isn't part of the Grand Army of the Republic. You're born into this universe not knowing what you need to do, not knowing what your purpose is, not knowing what your role is. I know what I'm here for. I know exactly what I'm supposed to do. And it's funny because as I was reading that, it it was so heartbreaking to me, you know, because it's the, it's that, it's a little slave mentality and they later talk about themselves as slaves, but of, you know, the Loki in the Avengers movie where he says, I've come to liberate you from freedom and from liberate you from choice. And you understand why that's appealing to some, especially these clones who've never given anything else, you know? They see people all over the world, all over the galaxy, you know, having angst, having, I don't know what my purpose in life is. I don't know what I should do with my life. I don't know what my goals are. I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. For the clones, all those questions are answered. And so there's a a simplicity that can feel feel at first very appealing. They're all answered at first. And then geonosis happens. And geonosis, for lack of a better term, is a dumpster fire. The clones particularly the clone commandos who have more strategic training and the arc troopers are just like, what the heck are these Jedi thinking? Have they not been training for the past 20 years to optimally utilize us? Cause I could do better blindfolded. Right. And they be, they've been trained for the past 10 years since birth uh, to trust in the Jedi, to listen to what the Jedi tell them to do. And now put in front of these heroes, these people who've been put up on massive pedestals. They're just like, are these people incompetent? Why aren't right. they great generals? And we know, of course, the Jedi were never trained for that. The Jedi aren't supposed to be involved in war. Mm-hmm. And so those who have more of an understanding of the world, those who aren't just on the battlefield and going back and forth between barracks and battlefield, the ones who do intelligence missions, who go on spy operations, who go to um, sabotage things. Those troopers, those clones, see more of the world and begin to question their place in it. Uh, Right. In Hard Contact, the first Republic Commando book, the troopers land and they realize that they don't have enough rations to last them for as long as this mission is going to take. And they've, of course, been trained to live off the land, and so they do. And for one of the first times in their life, they're able to eat something that isn't a nutritional block of flavorless protein. They're eating very disgusting soups and they're just like, oh, I killed an animal and I cooked it over a blaster. Like, it's not five-star cuisine. It's not even one-star cuisine. And they're like, this is the best thing I've ever tasted because they've tasted nothing else. But they're like, I wonder if there are things that are better. And they talk to people who aren't clones. They talk to common folk. And they're like, yeah, you want some soup? And they're like, what the heck is soup? Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. I'm currently watching all of the Star Trek shows in order with one of my partners. And we just last night watched the episode of Deep Space Nine. uh, Forgive me, small spoilers for a TV show that's 20 years old, uh, where they rescue a baby who grows up to be a Jem'Hadar. And in a lot of ways to me, the Jem'Hadar are bred much more for like aggression and anger and like seeing themselves as better than everyone else in a kind of xenophobic genocidal way, which which the clones aren't, but there's still very much that idea of I am bred to be a killing machine. And the idea of like finding pleasure in food, food just sustains the machine. You know, I'm a machine. I'm here to kill. It it really reminded me of the Republic commandos and the clone, the clones in, in these books. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so fascinating that how such a small chink in the armor can lead to so many things down the line. Mm. Um, And the other part of it, other than those experiences that change the perspective of the clones from we know exactly what we're supposed to do with life, is the Jedi. The Jedi treated some of them like humans. Right. Um, They're the ones who are like, 
Yes, I understand we're on a battlefield, but can you take your helmet off? I'd like to look at you in the eyes because it's disconcerting to me. Now, that's a selfish thing, and many, many, many Jedi were like, I'm just going to be selfish because you're just objects to me, but I'd like you to be a little bit less objectified. And then they're like, so what's your name? They're like, I'm DC-1726. And they're like, I'm not going to be able to remember that. What if I call you Disconnect? Cause, right. And the trooper's just like, sure <laughs> i guess and which is that, funny because you see that exact same process much much later with what's your name fn something something i can't call you fn how about finn right like that happens throughout the republic and the empire just everywhere because i mean dehumanize your soldiers and make them feel like they're not human and they'll do things that humans shouldn't do right um just desensitization. And I think one of the things that makes the whole, the, the dynamic between the Jedi and the clones so interesting is like you said, the clones sometimes get frustrated because the Jedi aren't using them properly because the Jedi often do see their humanity and, or at least are wrestling with, because, you know, theoretically there's, there's a difference between, you know, what you order machines to do and how much risk you're willing to put machines in versus people. And and the Jedi struggle with that. And I think one of the things the books kind of lay out is the blueprint for what we then see in Clone Wars and other shows about how this moral struggle of the Jedi of how do we are clone slaves? Can is it even moral to have a, a clone army to begin with is very much grounded in these books. Yeah. Um It's fascinating to see the Jedi, many of whom have no training, some of whom don't even know the Clone Wars have really started. And in hard contact, these very well-trained elite commandos run into a Padawan who doesn't think she's ready to be a Jedi, and they're just right. saluting her and saying, give us instructions on this battlefield. And she's like, I have no freaking clue. I have. I barely can hold a lightsaber. I barely know which end of the blaster to point towards the bad guy. I can't tell you anything. And they're like, what? They, there's a crisis of faith there mm -hmm. um, for both of them. Uh, because the Jedi Padawan, Attain, has been told her entire life, you will always know what to do, trust in the Force. And she's being told, use these people as resources. Use them as troops to accomplish the objective. And also right. cherish their life. And she's like, these things are not compatible. The force is telling me cherish their life. And you're telling me throw them into the meat grinder against the droids. Right. And, and that character uh, that's attain, I believe is how you pronounce her name. Is that correct? That's how I pronounce it. I've only read it. So yeah. <laughs> E-T-A-I-N. Um, one of the most interesting characters in all the books, because she, towards the end, she winds up leaving the Jedi in part because of exactly this. And she confronts her sort of Jedi master control you know the, her commander saying like it's immoral for us to have ever taken on this slave army uh and she even mentions like and what i think she even gets into a little bit of a conversation about the sentience of the droids and should the droids also be seen as sentient um which i i, I kind of hope that uh, uh jacob lichich of uh, bots are people too uh i get to tell him about that at some point because it was just it, it, it's fun seeing how much her character grows because i think she winds up being in some ways one of the not the only, but one of the consciences of the books, you know, of her moral growth is supposed to be the audiences and the readers in terms of, yeah, what what's happening, what we saw happen in the second and third movies and looked so glorious and great is actually pretty horrific. Yeah, um, I think pretty much every single character is just like everything, all the characters that we're following, all of the primary protagonists, the clone troopers, their trainers, the Jedi that we're following... They're all just like, this is terrible. How do we stop this without being without being treasonous, without betraying our own ideals of helping other people? Right. Huh. And one thing that I think is a fun addition to it is that for some of the clones, especially the ones who we're really following, who are primarily being trained by these two Mandalorians, one is... Um, Cal Scarada, and the other is Val. I forget his last name. Uh, it starts with the W. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Okay. But yeah, and, and both of them, you know, we know in other parts of Star Wars, although it's gone into much more in the Legends, 
that Mandalorians and Jedi have a very long, terrible history with each other. Uh, you know, the Mandalorian show, this is why the Dark Saber is so important, because and, and why Beskar armor is safe against lightsabers, because the Mandalorians have basically like they have seen the Jedi as their blood enemy for for generations. And I think one of the things that's interesting is also is seeing the books I think do a very subtle, interesting job of showing how these clones are developing the ability to think for themselves and to make their own conclusions. But some of their conclusions are anger at their Jedi masters. And that is certainly fueled by the very negative feelings that their, you know, father figures basically have about the Jedi themselves and how it's, it's not another kind of brainwashing, but it is a sense of the clones are being very, not, not, they're coming to their own conclusions, but they're also being very influenced by the people around them once again, just not by the Kaminoans anymore. Absolutely. Um, and it's Cal and uh, the other trainer, Walon Thou. Uh, they both dislike the Jedi, but I think for both of them, it's more of a uh, more disrespect. Their thought process process is: you have done nothing to earn the power that you have. You've right. done nothing to earn our respect, and yet you demand it because you think you're superior to us. I bet right. you I can beat you in a fist fight. You deserve none of my respect. Right. Um, and the clones, they don't quite go that far, but they d- respect those Jedi who put their, follow their words with action. Um, mm-hmm. They respect Anakin Skywalker because he's like, yep, we're going to go charge the castle. I'll lead. And they're like, that's stupid. And he's like, yes, it is, but we have to do it, so I'll go first. Um, <laughs> and they respect Ahsoka and Obi-Wan for similar reasons in the Clone Wars. Um, right. Well, and let's talk about the TV show The Clone Wars for a second then, because, you know, I think we often think about, like, the great sundering. You know, the moment when Disney took over Star Wars and declared that all of the, what is now the Legends canon, was non-canonical. Yep. And so whenever we're talking about the Clone Wars books, it's sort of interesting to be like, well, the books aren't canon, but they certainly inform the canon quite a lot, some more, some less. The Clone Wars TV show happened before Disney bought Star Wars, as I understand it. It started before, yes. It, it started before. And and certainly, I think, I think you and I talked about this when you watched the Clone Wars, an awful lot of these themes that we're talking about, you know, the clones starting to wake up that maybe they don't want to be soldiers, the clones starting to think about... Can we have romantic relationships? Can we have lives outside of being soldiers? And some of the Jedi and some of the Republic officials starting to wonder, like, is it moral for us to have this slave army? Those are all themes from the book that get very deeply explored in the Clone Wars shows. What, what, what's kind of your understanding? Or t- and, and sort of how did you feel seeing the, the themes from the books that you loved playing out in that way in, in the Clone Wars TV show? I really liked it. Um, I was glad to see more of it. Um, the way that the Clone Wars approached it was very different. Um, but it does hit the same notes. It's following clone troopers, the ground soldiers rather than the commandos. And so they have a little bit less personality, a little bit less training. They're less likely to go on missions on their own. Right. Uh, but you have story arcs like the battle on Umbara, where Gener- Jedi General Pong Krell is throwing away clone trooper lives and his excuse is your soldiers your job is to die so that we can win and this is one of the first places where we see clones disobeying orders and Mm. questioning the commands that they've been given and i thought that that was absolutely fantastic to see um i i hated those episodes because the clones are my friends they're my buddies and they were dying for no need but it was a very impactful episode or series of episodes i think it's a wonderful arc i despise the last 15 minutes of it because i think it kind of changes things dramatically in ways i didn't like um but i i kind of ignore that and just hold on to the idea of you know that both of it, it makes sense you know that why the commandos would be so against this why the clones would turn on krell but also why krell would kind of like in some ways that to protect himself from the moral um, 
you know, quandaries and getting lost in that, that there were happening so many other Jedi. He was just like, I'm not even going to acknowledge these, these people as people at all. They're just machines. And I'm just going to throw them into battle like they're machines. And it's a horrific villainous thing that he does, but you also understand where it's, to me, it's sort of like, yeah, that could happen to a Jedi. Um, Right. And then the last 15 minutes, they make him into a dark Jedi who's trying to help the Sith. And I just like, no, forget that. I I ignore all that entirely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was for me, it was kind of the opposite of going, having seen the Clone Wars TV show, which I think in many ways, like, so much of my understanding now of why did the Jedi fall, and also just how brilliant Palpatine's plan was of, and and to some extent, uh, Sidious and his predecessor, Darth Plagueis' plan, although Plagueis isn't quite canonical in the same way, but you know, that their plan of basically putting the Jedi in this impossible situation of having to direct an army of slave warriors and that it would cause this moral decay and corruption, like seeing that all that, I don't know if it starts with these books or just the books were the first chronologically to really explore it in quite this way. But to me, it's just so fascinating because I think of that as now so fundamental and bedrock to all of my understanding of Star Wars because that goes all the way to, you know, Luke and the Last Jedi and sort of his concerns about what what the Jedi Order became and what Rey will be and stuff like that. Yeah, I. that's why I like it. It sets, it explains so much. It makes the prequel movie so much stronger mm-hmm. knowing that it's not, it wasn't just a decision where Palpatine was like, yep, okay, time to kill the Jedi. It's this plan that undermines the infrastructure of the Jedi Order, undermines their faith in themselves and their abilities and in the Force. He doesn't just fight them. He has them destroy themselves from the inside. Right. Which makes sense because the his whole understanding and the Sith understanding is that everything about the Jedi is fundamentally hypocritical. Right. You know, the... The Obi-Wan line of only a Sith speaks in absolutes is to me is just sort of the crowning example of that because oh, I love it. that statement is an absolute statement. And like it just shows just how blind the Jedi are in many ways. And that Palpatine's whole plan is to take advantage of that and corrupt that is just it just adds so much depth to it in a way that the prequel movies unfortunately never really gave us. Right. They don't have the time in between all of the bombastic blockbuster action sequences to really explore right a gray morality and the books that's that's their job the tv show that's their job Um, Mm -hmm. i do have a nit to pick with the clone Wars show but it actually gets addressed somewhat in my opinion by the bad batch Mm, what's that Uh, this is a spoiler major spoiler for the clone wars Um, so if you haven't watched yet and you don't want to go in too spoiler heavy um i really hated the microchips the brain chips in the mm. Clone Wars, because it completely undermines the ethical questions, I think. Right. Um, the idea is the clones have a chip that forces them to do what they are told to do, or at least to follow certain orders. And it was very impactful when I first saw it, and first saw Order 66 and Revenge of the Sith, and when I first read about it in the various books that covered that moment, Because these clone troopers who have been following their commanders for years at this point make a choice. Mm -hmm. They choose to trust their orders. They choose to follow their orders. They they accept that the Jedi who have been giving commands to them for the last three years are traitors. Right. Uh, And in the Clone Wars, they say, hmm... That stretches believability. Why would these troopers shoot on their friends? We have to make it so that they are droids. And it removes humanity from them. And that's impactful in its own way, in a very different way. And it hurts me a lot because I felt like it undermined the story. However, in Bad Batch, um, with Crosshair, again, heavy spoilers, he starts Mm -hmm. by turning against his squad mates, against his brothers, because his chip is functioning and theirs are not. And he says, good soldiers follow orders, as many of the clones do when they're programmed. And throughout the show, whenever they interact with him, his argument is, good soldiers follow orders. And in the finale or the episode before the finale, they talk to him. They're like, we can get that chip out of you. We can save you. And he's like, you don't need to. I got that chip out myself. Good soldiers 
follow orders. Right. And his intensity of belief that his sense of being is that I am a person who follows orders. I don't question what I'm told. The people who are giving me instructions have best, my best interests in mind. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And we lose that in the Clone Wars. But I think the Bad Batch realized these characters become a lot less interesting when they're programmable. When they're not yeah, fully it, independent. I love agency. I love when characters have to wrestle with hard decisions. And I feel like I've gone on kind of a journey with... Uh, this particular movie and this particular with this particular question because I at first loved the ideas of the chips because I did the way it's portrayed in the third in the third prequel movie Revenge of the Sith the change is so instantaneous and there's no clone who expresses shock there's no clone who expresses concern there's no clone who in any way questions it in any way shape or form or even demonstrates any degree of, of the kind of questioning you're talking about, I feel like nothing except a chip would make sense to explain that. The problem is then, though, I'm asking the larger Uber plot to explain what's really just bad movie making. You know, and I think that's where I've kind of... You've, you've been talking to me about this a while, and I think these books helped bring me around. Because one of the things that these books do is is they kind of really show not only our... The clones getting frustrated with the Jedi uh, for not using them well, but that they're starting to see that the battle plans don't make any sense anymore. And they talk about how right before Order 66, there's all these worlds where they're not even helping the they're not even really helping the Republic. They're getting involved in like these minor civil wars on backwater planets that maybe the Separatists sent them a few guns to the other side. But it's not really an issue, and the Grand Army of the Republic is spread so thin, and and there's all these things that are happening that are making the clones already start questioning the Jedi, and they're already wondering, like, could the Jedi be working with the Separatists? Could the Jedi be traitors? And, and they really kind of set the groundwork for the idea that when Order 66 comes, the clones are kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think something important to add. Go for it is that the clone troopers have spent three years seeing Jedi in combat. Right. They know that if they hesitate, they're dead. They know that if they're thinking about attacking the Jedi, the Jedi will know before they can pull the trigger. And so they, the instant they hear, they know that thought is in their head, and they need to know, and they do know from their experience, that their Jedi commander in front of them will be able to sense any hostile intent. Right. And so they cannot hesitate and they are trained to respond to commands um in the republic commando series i know books not movie because we don't get a whole lot of clone philosophy in the movies um somebody calls out the check command which mm -hmm. tells a clone soldier to don't pull your trigger do not fire and the clone hearing that from somebody he's not been told to listen to immediately holds his fire Right. Because it's a reflex. He's told, don't fire, he doesn't fire. He's told, fire, he fires. Because in a way, they have been programmed, but that's just through years and years of training and years of battlefield conditions where they need to follow orders or they die. Right, and, and, and as, you, as you said, crosshair is the perfect like microcosm of that because, yes, the chip might have had an effect, but it's much more just the... It, it's. And it's weird because, I mean, brainwashing is also kind of control, but you can have some agency over it. You can have a story about how some people break the break that control and some don't in a way that a chip, you just can't. Because now, like you said, they're just droids. Right. And it doesn't have to be mechanical brainwashing. It can be cultural or social brainwashing. Oh, yeah. We exactly. have plenty of that in our own culture. Many people have beliefs that over time they learned, wait, there are other opinions than the one that I was taught growing up? Right. Weird. Let me question that. I mean, even today, in every military around the world, at least I think, but certainly in the American military, you know, there's, there is an awful lot of that brainwashing conditioning that happens to, like, help. And a lot of the soldiers who have come back from Afghanistan and Iraq have told about how, you know, they were able to commit these atrocities because they were just taught to, like, not see them as humans, to see them only as threats. And, right. You know, Don't um, think. Act. Yeah, exactly. Similar kind of thing happens with police. And that's why a lot of the, the, the horrors of racism in the police departments can be traced to the same kind of thing. And yes, because I, I think that's where I, where I really wrestled is 
I love the idea that it is an active agency by the clones, and it is in part because of how poorly the Jedi have treated the clones, and that 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 sort of ember of resentment has been, you know, uh, you know, managed and expanded upon by by Sidious and Palpatine, by Sidious Palpatine, and all the rest. Because I think that's such a fantastic story. It it just that it so doesn't fit with what we saw on screen in the third movie, and I think that's where I wrestle a lot. Um, especially because, like you said, if the idea is to give these characters some agency, the fact that every single one in the movie all does the same thing, I think kind of negates that. So, so it's, it's a hard thing. It's like, I, I, I prefer the version that the Republic commandos give us. And I wish that the movie had given us that, especially because in, in the books, and I was joking with you beforehand, I, I wanted to see more of this. I wanted to see more of you know, groups of commandos that were ordered to kill a Jedi and, like, one of them maybe had some qualms, but the rest of them just all went straight into reflex or that, you know, some of them had guilt afterwards or were wrestling with it. Because the characters in the books, by the time we get to that scene, have all completely given up on the Republic. They're all planning to desert. They're like, okay, well, I'm not carrying out that order. Who cares? You know, we don't see as much of that. But still, I like their their version of it. But I just, I, 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 and this is maybe more of a, a movie-making perspective. I'm kind of curious your, your thoughts on it. I feel like though still Clone Wars needed something like the chip to explain what happens on the, in the movie because it's just like, I, I don't think the reflexes is a strong thing, but it is so universal and so quick. Like I know I'm going back and forth on my own argument here, but I feel like it's hard. You kind of need some level of the chip to justify what happens in that terrible movie. But I like, like you said, that the Bad Batch is at least now trying to kind of square that circle somewhat. Right. I mean, in both the Clone Wars and in Bad Batch, when the Order comes out, we do see some clones, albeit ones who have broken free of the chip, fighting back. We see Rex, we see the Bad Batch helping Jedi. Um, And I'd love to see in Revenge of the Sith, in the movie... We don't have enough time for it, but in the second after the one clone uh, who's flying with Plo Koon, for example, in their Starfighters, if I'm remembering mm-hmm. my Jedi and their deaths correctly, after he just shoots his lasers and blows up the Jedi, I want to see another clone just shoot him. I just yeah. want to see his ship also get destroyed, because another one is like, you just fired on a commanding officer, or not even, he doesn't need to shoot, he needs to say, what the hell are you doing? Right. Yeah, to just show that there is some of that agency, some of that conflict happening back and forth. Right, like, I think if one trooper... Because, like, did literally every single trooper get a notification on their smartwatch being like, shoot the Jedi now? Because the way we see it in the movie, in Revenge of the Sith, it's something that goes to the commanders. Right. right? Commander Cody has him on his smartwatch hollow projector, but none of the other troopers do. Yeah, you kind of wonder why there isn't one going, wait, wait, why why did you just shoot uh, General Kenobi? What the hell happened there? Right. Um. And the books at least also help to explain that of that this was one of those orders that was conditioned into them from a very, very young age. Right. And no Order 65. No, what's Order 65? The Supreme Chancellor has betrayed the Republic and must be taken into custody or killed immediately. Interesting. Okay. Which is the precise, like. The Jedi at any point, if they were, when they went to confront Palpatine, they should have just hit Order 65. They shouldn't have got in there themselves. Right. And, and that's such a brilliant thing because, you know, we, we later learn that clearly the these 160 orders were all written by, you know, Sifo-Dyas or Dooku or, or someone, but basically with orders coming to some extent from uh, Palpatine as he was preparing this army for, he always knew Order 66 was there. But as they like one of the Jedi, one of the clones is like the Jedi could have always read these orders at any time if they wanted to. They're right there on the mainframe. And, you know, if I'm a Jedi and I just read that the clones have, you know, always follow orders, you know, always pack up your gear when you're leaving something, you know, always shoot for this part of the body, be ready to kill all the Jedi. I'd be like, what the hell? But if there's an order first that says be ready to kill the Chancellor and then an order that says ready to kill the Jedi... If I'm a Jedi, I'm now less nervous. I'm like, oh, okay, they're just planning for every eventuality. Of course, that's never going to happen. And it's kind of a brilliant way of, like, hiding this in plain sight. 
I I love what Sidious has done with the Clone Wars. Like, I think it is a work of art. It's a terrible work of art, but it is a work <laughs> of art nonetheless. Because he's able to contrive a circumstance where the Republic needs an army that is next to the Jedi and powerful enough to take out the Jedi. And so he, on his own, one Sith Lord, kills hundreds, thousands of Jedi. Right. By saying, yeah, I'd like a 66 combo, please. He does it in this way that's just wonderfully elegant because, and again, you know, horrible fascist genocidal murderer, not a fan by any means. But Agree. Because so much of what is done, so much of what happens is he's kind of giving the Jedi the rope that they need to hang themselves. You know, that the Jedi's own behavior has so turned the clones against the Jedi that they're willing to go along with this order so quickly is to me such an important part of it. Yeah, it's a beautiful execution of the groundwork that Darth Bane laid down thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm, exactly. Like, Bane was like, we're never going to be able to beat the Jedi saber to saber. We need to think about this. Right. And Palpatine did. <laughs> so there's so much we can get into with that, or maybe it was Bane inside Palpatine, as uh, any listeners to our last episode will have some idea what in the world we're talking about with that crazy theory. Please, yes. <laughs> But... So the last thing I want to get on to, because this is not as much connected to Clone Wars and Bad Batch, but is connected to the Mandalorian TV show, is that through these books, we also do get an awful lot of an insight into Mandalorian culture uh, because of how much, you know, Skarada and, and Vu, uh, Val, raise their, their boys, their soldiers in a very Mandalorian way. And, the, you know, the spoilers, like the book ends with a lot of them going back to Mandalore itself to seek refuge. And we've already talked about a little bit about the um, the anti-Jedi feelings of the Mandalorians and how that infects the clones. That impacts the clones. Infects is a little bit of a strong word. But what what else do you see of Mandalorian culture in these books that either does or doesn't get represented in uh, the Mandalorian TV show that we've now had exploring that part of things? I think the biggest element is the idea of found family. Mm, yeah. Uh, the clones are at one point officially adopted by Cal Scarada. And by officially adopted, they did not fill out any paperwork. The Republic does not know that a Mandalorian commando has adopted a bunch of their clones. He just said, like, the five words that a Mandalorian needs to say to adopt somebody. He's like, I called you my son, therefore you are my son. End of story. Or, I I I called you my child, you're my child, this is fact. And that's brought over in the Mandalorian with the Mandalorian and Grogu. He's just like, you're part of my family now. I would die for you. But right. And then the other, other Mandalorians wind up honoring that and, and seeing that as true. Right. And it, to me, that was one of the most fun things we learned about the Mandalorians, especially in the last couple books that for them, like ceremonies aren't sentimental affairs, you know, and that you can literally get married by texting your vows to someone who is in airplane mode, they read the text when they get out of airplane mode, i.e. out of hyperspace, and text their vows back to you, you are now married in the eyes of Mandalorian law. Um, which I just thought was like such a great way to handle contracts like that, you know? They're very practical, and the idea is that they're warriors and they don't know when they'll die, so why take the time to, if you want to make it happen, just make it happen. We don't right. need fluff. We just... Say the things that we feel. And I think that's also very important. These are soldiers and they're presented as very masculine in many places. But they also are just like, yeah, we are. We have also been taught to express our feelings. Now, the clones, of course, start by being having very repressed feelings because they don't know what feelings are because they didn't get a whole lot of education on that. And most of their education was this is the point part of the blast that you point at the bad thing and that's how you shoot it. Right. But Cal and the other trainers, particularly with the clone commandos and the ARC troopers, were able to teach them this is what feelings are. These are how you're able to deal with them. Cal Scarada has a lot of complex feelings with his biological family, and he works through them eventually by talking to people. And I think it actually helps a lot that they interact with the Jedi because the Jedi are like, yeah, feelings are feelings. You need to control them and not let them control you. Let's work together right. on this. And, and what winds up happening is, I, I think it's very intentional that the clones who spend so much time with the Mandalorians 
not only do they build strong family units with each other's brothers and also with their their Mandalorian commanders, their fathers, but many of them wind up seeking out romantic relationships and in, in a in number of cases get married in some way or another, including one to a Jedi, uh, the, the Elaine we mentioned before, who I think in a similar way sort of comes to understand that repressing her her love and her desire for one of the clones, uh, Darman specifically, uh, you know, doesn't make sense. And and I, I kind of love that that part of the Mandalorian influence is so strong that both clones and Jedi wind up questioning, like, wait, why can't I have love the way everybody else can? Yeah, I think it's also, it's so fascinating to see the connection between the Mandalorian, listen to your feelings, and the Jedi, control your feelings, the mm-hmm. intersection of the two, because... Barden Jusik is another one of the Jedi. He starts as a Padawan and eventually becomes a knight, and then eventually is just like, screw all this galactic BS, I'm gonna go do good. Yeah. Um, And he grabs a suit of Mandalorian armor and puts it on and straps his lightsaber to the side and goes off to be a knight errant. Except he listens to his feelings and the Force. He has his friends and his attachment, the things that he will sacrifice for. And it's not moral absolute it's not this is good this is bad it's right these are the things that are important to me and i think that that's a very important evolution for the jedi and what they needed to have done two and a half thousand years earlier yeah and i think it's very intentional that as we see a number of jedi uh elan uh elaine being elaine being the the most prominent but but a number of them you know developing attachments and, and romantic feelings and sexual feelings for for other beings there's never a shadow of a doubt there's never a moment that her attachment that her feelings of love and of desire and sexuality and romance are in any way taking her to the dark side you know it, it feels like it is such a complete rejection of that part of the jedi ideology and that especially coming so soon after the fall of anakin quite literally um, for that to be, you know, her story is playing out in real time at the same time as Anakin's story. And to me, it's just such a wonderful, like, counterpoint of the problem isn't that Anakin felt attachment. The problem is that the Jedi, by forcing him to try and repress his attachments, gave him no safe way to feel to feel these feelings. And I think it's very intentional that um, Elaine goes to Cal and to, to Bursic and to Jersic and some of the others for help in figuring out how to manage and how to balance her feelings of attachment with everything else. And it's her getting that, which Anakin never got, that means, yeah, it's perfectly fine for a light side force user to have attachments. It doesn't have to be this idiotic oppression that the Jedi preach. Right. Like, one of her first interactions with Cal, she felt the tempest of emotion around him and was like, oh, this is bad, this is bad, he's bad. And then later realized, no, he just feels things very strongly, but he doesn't let those emotions control him all the time. He takes things very practically. Yes, he would like to kill that person and does not because he knows it would be bad and have negative consequences. And he takes things into Mm. consideration in a way that the Jedi don't. He actually considers his actions, whereas they just do or do not they don't there is yeah he tries cal tries (laughs) right he makes yoda very unhappy i think it's also true i think cal is such a fascinating character because again he's never presented as being good necessarily he's presented as having his own very specific moral code that he sticks to and that there's a lot of his moral code that we find i think the readers can find very understandable and very relatable one of the last scenes, though, in the books, spoilers here, um, we're spoiling the books the whole time, and they've been out for 18 years, um, 15 years, whatever, I'm bad at math. You know, we're getting to a point where Order 66 is kicked in, and the heroes of the book, the characters we care about, are clearly like they're not on any side. They don't care about this at all. Although many of them are kind of like, yeah, go get the Jedi. The Jedi are terrible. And many, like, they seem to believe the reasoning for order 66, you know, many of them are like, okay, yeah, doesn't, doesn't surprise me that the Jedi would be traitors this whole time. Cal is certainly on board with that. And so we get a scene where, um, they're trying to smuggle everyone out because they're literally deserting. So the Republic is not going to be happy about this. 
She's renounced her position with the Jedi, but that's not going to matter to the Order 66 clones, the clones who are following that. She's trying to get through. She's trying to get through a checkpoint. And before she can get through a checkpoint, a number of other Jedi uh, who are also, and I think they're actually Padawans. They're supposed to not be like old master Jedi. They're like teenagers. They're about to be caught by the clones. And so they start fighting back. And having seen all the other Star Wars stuff, like, you know, I know that Order 66 is horrific. I know that the Jedi shouldn't be being massacred. And so my immediate sympathies are with the Jedi. And when Elaine and Cal start to go to combat, you know, they're basically rolling initiative in the middle in the middle of the scene of the book. I'm like, okay, so they're going to fight on the side of these poor Padawans who are getting trapped in this. But they don't. You know, the the Padawan is about to strike down one of the clones who's attacking him, a clone who to Elaine, you know, looks just like her her lover, her her husband, Darman, the father of her child. And she has, you know, she sympathizes with that clone and understands, like, the Jedi don't see the clones as people. And so a scene that I'm reading as these teenagers fighting for their lives in this oppressive order, she sees as the Jedi are just killing more clones. And <clears throat> she winds up trying to defend one of the clones and gets killed. And then Cal, even before that, but especially after seeing that, you know, he's leaping into the fight against the Jedi. And it was so interesting to me because the way it's written, you're like, yeah, of course, that, that, it, you kind of like, that's the position they would take. But it still throwed through me so much because they're fighting against what I've been taught in this story are the good guys. Right. Um, they're and I, teaming up with who will eventually become stormtroopers. What's up right, with that? To kill teenagers just because they're force users. But but I think what's, that's what's so brilliant about the book is it doesn't present it as Cal and Elaine are evil and they're, they're presenting it as with the information that they have and the sympathies and the loyalties that they have and what they've been taught, their actions make total sense within their own moral systems. And I just, getting me to sympathize and understand them, I think is just, it's really a testament to how good the writing is and how well it it you understand just how much this moral web that... Sidious has has created is that these good people can wind up basically being tools of fascism without having any idea that they're doing so. Right. Uh, I I do think in that scene, Attain is trying to not kill the Jedi. I think she believes that with her combat experience, she can defend the clones and she just wants to keep people from dying. Play right. the game of nobody dies today. Whereas once she goes down, Cal and the clones are just like, oh, you killed my daughter, my sister, my wife, and you feel no remorse. Right. So you get to go next. Right. Um, when it's like, and what, what what they perceive is, I feel no remorse to those Jedi. It's probably they're fighting for their lives while 99% of their community has just been exterminated. Like, right. It, it's a very powerful moment, and I think it's handled very well. Definitely. Um, and then... The fifth book in the series breaks things down even further. It's the first book in the Imperial Commando series, but that never got fleshed out. So it's the fifth book in the Republic Commando series. Mm. But you're following the clones as they're on the inside and they're trying to deal with the existence of the Empire and their loss. And it continues to be very powerful. Well, And talk a little bit about, because I've not gotten a chance to read that book, but obviously that period of time is what the uh, Bad Batch series covers. And especially the Bad Batch series gets into this question of the Empire deciding to not keep using clones and instead to just hire actual people and and, and in many cases impress actual people into a military and deciding to stop using clones. In the book, I I take it those quite different, right? It's not actually that far different. Mm, Um, Okay. The book is entitled 501st which is known as Vader's Fist. And they are the troops that marched on the temple with Darth Vader. And some of the clones who remain behind are brought into the 501st because they did help kill Jedi at this checkpoint. Mm -hmm. And so they're regarded as good soldiers who followed orders. Um, And most of the troops that they are working with are... Troopers that have been trained up to the level of commandos or 
recruits. They There are some conscripts in the 501st to replace numbers because Camino isn't the happiest with the Republic at this point because right. they've defaulted on some payments and some other things like that. Um, well, and in the... So according to those books, one thing they introduce is this idea that, that Palpatine has created this whole second clone army, which is one that I think has never been discussed in Canada in the same way. Yeah, but, the budget troops. Right. Is the conceit then that those budget troops are what become the stormtroopers of the Empire, and that's why they're all such terrible shots? Or, um, like, what – who – according to these books, who are the stormtroopers that we'll later, that we'll later meet in the Empire books, in the Empire um, movies? When we get to the new Gal- – or the Galactic Civil War era with A New Hope and all of that, all of the clones are almost certainly dead. Um, okay. One of the major plot points of the Republic Commando series is that clones are aging many times faster than they should. They're right. in their early 20s at – 10 years physical age or chronological age and like their twenties biologically. Right. Um, and so left untreated without a cure, a way to reverse that 17 years later, they're going to be, <clears throat> if it remains at just doubled in their close to their what? 60s, 70s. Right. Um, and I believe that it's nonlinear progression. In fact, accelerates even further once they get past their peak fighting age so once right. they hit 30 they just rapidly because at that Anyways, point to... you don't need them anymore right to answer your question um the troops in the galactic civil war are, are conscripts um but the budget clone troopers that palpatine has are a placeholder between the clones that were loyal to the jedi and to the republic because if we're in the world where the chips exist, if the chips fail, he loses part of his army. Right. And they still have some of their old loyalties and their experiences, and they're not loyal to him. Whereas the new budget clones are. And then getting people involved in their own tyranny and own oppression is part of his tactic in suppressing revolt. If your family members in the army, you're going to be less likely to bomb the barracks. Mm. And so... He wants conscripts as soon as possible, but getting that conscription army up to force is going to take more time than just printing out some more clones that are cheap and quickly trained. I think it's also fascinating, and I really love hearing about that, especially that you brought the 501st again, because fans of the Clone Wars will remember that the 501st was Anakin's division. That was the one that we saw as our heroes for most of the TV show, The Clone Wars. And so it, it leads me to ask... You know, if now they're fighting under Vader, do we do we get introduced to any characters in the book who fought with Anakin and now either suspect or know that Vader is Anakin? Like, do they make that connection or do they think like, oh, Anakin was one more of the traitorous Jedi, he got killed, but this Vader guy is on our side and he's helped leading us now instead? Um, if I remember correctly, the clone troopers know of know who he is. Mm. Uh, and they're like, he's a guy who didn't betray us, or at least the ones outside of Omega Squad who are our protagonists. They're just like, yep, Anakin's still our commander, he's in charge, he's not a traitor like the rest of them Jedi. He's a good guy, he fights for us. Um, That's so heartbreaking. And so they see him as a well-regarded leader. Yeah. And I think stories like that are so important, because it's so often to think of, you know, okay, well, this terrible leader has convinced all these people to follow him, so all those people are just as terrible and they're all immoral and awful and we should kill all them without any moral compunctions. And, like, don't get me wrong, I'm not here defending, you know, the um, followers of any particular fascists in our own world, uh, particularly in this day and age. Um, but but I think it's a powerful story to be able to see that, like, yeah, to humanize the people who would go along with something like that because the way they've been taught in their particular moral framework, it makes sense. Um, right. So, yeah, it's... Well, this has been such a good conversation. There's so much more we could obviously get into. But, um, Jonah, is there any other kind of last things you wanted to to bring up or mention? There is. There's one quick thing. It's one of my favorite things about the Bad Batch. Um, So as I've mentioned, the protagonist squad in the Republic Commando series is Omega Squad. And in the Bad Batch, there's a character called Omega. And, of course, it's both... And it's the last letter of the Greek alphabet, and so there's 
that connection there. But part of me thinks that it is an intentional connection, an intentional nod to the series. And I really appreciate that sort of subtle, Mm, we got you. We understand where we're coming from. This is our heritage. And I love that. Yeah, I I think it's so true. And And that's part of why I bring this up all the time, because I know there's a lot of fans of the Legends canon who are deeply upset that, you know, Disney made it non-canonical and, you know, and, and, and the, you know, the, all sorts of complaints about the sequel movies, which, you know, my, my, my views are pretty well known on. And I don't want to get in any of those debates, but I do think, you know, and for some people it may never be enough and that's fine, but I, I love knowing that it is so clear that the people writing a lot of the, the, the canon that's coming out now and but also the canon over the last 20 years were so clearly deeply influenced by the the legend stuff, you know, and that their ideas are living on. It, it does, especially given some other Star Wars stuff, raise for me the question of, like, was a lot of this ways to steal those ideas without paying for them uh, or paying more for them? And that's a whole other legal question. But, you know, I just from the writing perspective, I love that these legend ideas have not been forgotten and are still being not only honored with homages like that name, but that the ideas that they created, the themes that were, were came out of these, are the same stories that are being told, even if the names are different or the, the execution is different sometimes. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, Jonah. Uh, for folks who want to hear more about what you're doing, uh, where can they follow you? Uh, they can find me at Jedi underscore Archives, as well as follow my podcast, The Archives Are Incomplete, by going to fatelfgames.com slash archives. Awesome. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Um Jonah, I think so much of my education about the Legends canon came from you, and I'm so glad that you've gotten me much more into it. You're a, a major inspiration for this book club, and I'm we're gonna, as I said, we're gonna start with our regular coverage of Star Trek uh, Star Wars Rebels starting next week. Uh, we'll be happy to get you in on some of those episodes, um, and I, I, we're gonna continue that as long as we can go. Once uh, the new shows start up. I don't know if we're going to be able to do an episode of both a week because I think at some point I might need to sleep for a couple of hours. Um, But we're going to try and see what we can do there. But, you know, certainly the book club is going to continue, especially because we're going to get a number of TV shows for which we have canonical novels that have come out. You know, the the novel about Ahsoka, the novel about uh, Kenobi, uh, some of the other shows that are are very based in, in either legends or canon novels. So we'll definitely be coming back to you, Jonah, to continue the book club and to, to bring those up when those shows start coming out. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, you've probably heard me talk by now many times about the review contest. It's still going on. Drop a five-star review for this or Superhero Ethics or any of the many uh, Stranded Panda TV shows, and you can win some great prizes. Please do that. Do that on iTunes specifically. Please also check out my other podcast, The Marvel Movie Minute, where I'm reviewing Thor a minute at a time. We're having great fun with that. And more than anything, have a great day. Bye.